Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hello again, friends, and welcome to our Resolute Hope podcast. This is John Russell, and I'm here back again one more time with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman. How are you doing today, Frank? It's a great journey. One step at a time <laughs> and an interesting world, isn't it? Indeed it is, especially this particular time. To our listeners, this is week six of our podcast series on law and grace. And this week, we're going to focus in on Romans 5.17. And the key thought there, receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. So if you've missed our previous podcast, please check them out. We think you'll like them. But as a brief summary, over the past several weeks, we chatted about the principle of law. That's where we began this series. Not law, capital L-A-W, the law of Moses, but the principle of law that began in the garden. We talked about the bad news, the very bad news of our death in Adam. Then we shifted to one of the results of our death in Adam, our flesh, what it is, how it functions, and what to do with it. And then we moved on last time to one of the solutions to death in Adam, and that is life in Christ, and recognizing that we're crucified with Christ and resurrected with him. And my friend, that has been a truth that has been profoundly freeing in my life. So today we're going to focus on Romans 5.17, and I'd like to begin by reading that from the ESV. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Frank, you referred to this as our redemptive history in one verse. What do you mean when you say that? Wow, that is a very power-packed verse, John. You know, one of the most powerful in the entire Bible. It takes us back to Adam in the garden and how we got into this mess that we're in called sin, uh, death, and takes us through history up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he brought to us, the gift of righteousness. I notice it's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We don't have to perform for it. And the abundance of grace. And I love that word because I need lots of grace. Uh, I've had people tell me, all you ever do is talk about grace. Yes, because we need a lot of it. Um, and there's one verb, and it's receive. Not pray, not tithe, not fast, not read your Bible, not go to church. 
but open up your arms and say thank you to what Jesus did. And that takes what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and brings it into the present of this year, 2020. And they're not doctrines because that final phrase is so important, John. We get to reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. It lifts it off the page of the Bible to a person who, because of his work, is now able to live inside of us and express himself through us in such a powerful way that we get to live as royalty, as princes and princesses, holding our heads high, knowing that we have value and significance and that our lives matter to God. Boy, what a verse. Indeed it is. And I'm going to jump right in, my friend, and meddle. <laughs> You're it's, good at that. <laughs> I know it. So I want to begin by meddling and ask our listeners a very simple question. On a scale of one to five, how well are you reigning in life? Now, don't answer that. Just think about it. Because as Frank and I have wrestled with this over many years, we sort of have seen over the years four different outcomes of this verse in the lives of believers. There are some folks who embrace their righteous identity and they understand and apply the abundance of grace. And according to Romans 5, 17, they are reigning in life. And you can just tell by looking at them. There's another group of Christians, and Frank, you and I have talked about these. They understand their righteous identity, but they don't understand and apply an abundance of grace. They focus rather on performance. And those people tend to be ruled by these words, ought to, must, and should. And they find themselves much more in a sense of bondage instead of freedom. We've seen over the years, my friend, a third group where they don't really understand their righteous identity, but they do understand grace. And so what that results in commonly is license. I'm free, I'm free, I'm free to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, with no consequences whatsoever. That's not grace, that's license. And then there's a very unfortunate fourth group where they don't understand their identity and they really don't have an understanding of grace either. And so these folks largely are empty, driven Christians. And so Frank, you and I have seen these groups over many years. It's important to get this understanding of this verse right, isn't it? Yeah, you know, John, we don't wanna be formula people. Um, we It's all about a relationship with Jesus, but boy, Romans 5, 17, seems to present a formula. If you get that identity right and you live in the economy of grace, you're going to reign. But if you get your identity and don't get grace, uh, there's bondage because the law is going to keep you enslaved. And that flip side, if you get the grace, but don't understand who you are, you're you tend to run in license. If you don't get either, keep walking the aisle and rededicating until your rededicator wears out. And, you know, that fourth group 
is where I found myself in my Christian life for many, many years. I thought I was a no good, filthy, wretched sinner. And I was living under the law and didn't understand grace. And I preached a much better message than I ever lived. And it's not done purposely, John. The heart was in the right place. I wanted to serve God. I wanted to lead others to God. But it's kind of a universal law that you can't give to others what you yourself don't have. And uh, so the fruit was not there. That not even in my own life, but in the lives of so many others that I was seeking to minister to. Indeed, I too have struggled in this area, my friend. Being the intellectual-minded person that I am, uh, I convinced myself that I could pull it off with mm. my knowledge, with my understanding. In fact, I used to pride myself on being able to distinguish between these very obscure theological phrases. And now, thank God, I don't even remember the phrases. Uh, but many Christians struggle here, my brother. You know, we, we both have shared that we have struggled. And it's difficult to understand why, because when you drive around this country, you see churches with grace in the title everywhere. Grace this and grace that. It should be a no-brainer, but man, it isn't, is it? No, you know, John, uh, once the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to the key, and really the key, and I'm just going to state this as simply as I can, is that you will never understand the Bible until you understand that God works in covenants. There was an old covenant, but it gave way to a new covenant. And the new covenant made the old covenant obsolete. And that's where I think a lot of people don't have that understanding. So they take Old Testament verses and apply them to their lives today as believers. If I, I could just give an example. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful beyond all things. And for years, I would hammer people with that verse. And you got to understand, I hammered myself first. <laughs> and uh, you can't have that economy. A friend of mine says there's a lot of things that, that are biblical. You can find them in the Bible, but they're not Christian. And that is one of those verses because in Ezekiel 36, in the new covenant, God said, I'm going to take away that heart and give you a new one. And so what I was doing, which is what a lot of people do, is we teach the Bible as a unit and take Old Testament truth and put them on New Testament believers. And we've got to separate those covenants. And that's not what a lot of people have learned how to do. And so grace actually becomes incomplete in our understanding. We gain grace to get into the kingdom of God. We understand that there's no way we could ever get into the kingdom without the grace of God. But we don't have grace as an economy to walk in. And so here we are as saints calling ourselves sinners. Here we are righteous in him 
and yet we call ourselves wretched. And uh, it's, it's a mixture. And we've destroyed our concept of grace. We've failed to apprehend how glorious the grace of God really is. And so grace becomes a name, a doctrine, a placard on a church, a nice little window decoration, a Christmas tree ornament. Uh, we write these little plaques that say, uh, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, which is true, but it's really only the tip of the iceberg. Titus 2 says grace is a person. Frank, I'm going to put you on the spot. Give us a definition of grace. Wow. Okay. As best you can. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. No. The most simplistic I could give is you just said it. Grace is a person. His name is Jesus. But to give a more full and complete definition to help people understand this incredible person and what he has done, I would say grace is defined as this. Grace is being delivered from the economy of performing for God and for ourselves that Adam placed us into in the Garden of Eden and being placed instead into an economy of receiving all that God is to all that we need to experience in the moment of faith. Now that's a mouthful, but I think that's the most complete definition I could give. Well, Frank, that was an amazing definition of grace. It's so different from what we hear in most of the Christian community. In fact, it's so different from what most churches practice. We talked about how the name grace is used on churches and organizations everywhere, but over the years, you and I have learned that the church has a pretty poor understanding of grace. And so they have a poor application of it, don't they? Yeah, John, you know, as I reflect on that and listening to you, it's almost like in the, for, for many churches that now that they've got Jesus, now they can really keep the law. Do you know what I mean? It's like they're still trying to keep the law, but now they're going to do it in the name of Jesus. And they've missed uh, the whole intent and purpose of what the law was all about in the first well, place. Interesting you say that, my friend, because I had a chat with a fellow some months ago. We were going through the book of Galatians, and he said plainly, I don't follow the law, but I do use it as gutters in a bowling alley. It helps me to know when I'm getting too far off track. So I looked at him, of course, in my tender, loving John way. <laughs> and I said, oh, so basically you're letting the law replace the role of the Holy Spirit, whose job is to convict you of sin. And you're letting the law replace grace, who is a person, Titus 2, uh, to to basically build righteousness into you, to conform you into righteousness. And of course he backtracked, but he came back to uh, the old tried and true verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So of course I can do better at keeping the law than I have in the past. And frankly, I didn't have an answer for that. Wow. Well, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. Son. I think 
one of the things that, again, that just goes right over people's heads, like an Indy 500 syndrome, I call it, you know, there it went, uh, is just a failure to read Genesis uh, deeply, uh, thoughtfully. Uh, when, when God put that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, don't eat from it. So if we just run with that in our thought process, God never wanted us to live by right and wrong in the first place. Uh, it's something we chose. And God said that's going to bring us death. And, you know, anybody who's tried to live by the law, they know, just like Romans 2 says, they have a conscience. And it, it shows them, it tells them. Uh, you may say not to do something, but you do it. You do it in your heart. Even if you don't do it on the outside, you're doing it on the inside. And, and nobody can really keep this thing. No, they can't. And we're not intended to. Going back to Genesis and then zooming forward uh, several books, you get to the book of Judges. And we've mentioned this before in our chats, that there are several times where scripture records and men did what was right in their own eyes. So that's the result of eating of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You become your own God. You determine right and wrong. And I find it interesting that this went on for quite a while. God leads his people out of Egypt, and along comes Genesis chapter 20, where God says, and I'm paraphrasing now, guys, you're doing it all wrong. The law is holy, perfect, and good. You're not behaving holy, perfect, and good. So I'm going to give you these commandments. This is what it means to be holy, perfect, and good bang, here's 10. And oh, by the way, 603 more are coming soon. And if you live up to all of these, you'll be holy, perfect, and good. But how'd that work out, Frank? <laughs> that, it was a dismal <laughs> failure. Yeah, it's, it's almost as you mentioned, from the time of Genesis all the way to Exodus 20, man lived under law, a, a, a sense of right and wrong, but he really didn't get it. And so God gives the law, the Ten Commandments, and then the others in Exodus 20 to say, here's what it means to live under the law. In other words, you really want to try to be like me? Here's what you've got to do. And a lot of people don't realize this, John, but, you know, all the law was, well, well two things. They think God gave the law. No, no, no. Man chose it in Genesis. All God did was clarify it and give man a, a target. The second thing we fail to realize in the church is that all the law is, is love stated negatively. You know, if I love you, I won't kill from you. If I love you, I won't steal from you. If I love you, I won't covet what you have. And, and when I share that, people say, well, then why didn't God just tell us to love? Well, think about it. We're separated from God and he is love. So we didn't know what love was. So he had to put it in the negative. And unfortunately, the Jews did this, and it's what Christians are doing today. Instead of looking at the law and saying, I can't do that, they, in their arrogance and pride, look at the law and say, I can do that. And I can be like God. And deep down, every man knows he can't. And then that leads to wearing of the Sunday mask and the Sunday suit, and we act like we're holy when we know in our heart we're really not. We know we're being an actor or an actress. 
We know that it's fake, uh, but we're not in a safe place enough to be able to admit it because we think we're the only one that can't pull it off. But in reality, nobody's pulling it off. (laughs) Well, and then you have people with the mindset that I have that uh, good administration solves a lot of problems. Mm. And so when you apply that to the deficiencies of humanity in the face of the law, and you're a pastor, then what do you do? You, you craft your church with programs, 10 steps to accomplish this in your life, 20 steps to be holy, be just like the Apostle Paul. My goodness, go into a Christian bookstore and read the titles on the shelves, and you might come away with the idea that Christians can't do anything. They need guides and steps and rules and principles and practices for everything. And so it really is, it's, it's dis- disconcerting, it's discouraging, uh, because most Christians are confused. They mingle the covenants, my friend. They mix them up mm. like a big gumbo, and they forget the simple word of Philippians chapter 2. God works in you to will and to do. And they forget Psalms 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and you know, he's going to place in your heart the desires that he wants you to have. And so just trust him, delight in him, and then live, and he'll work his life out through you. It's so simple, but my goodness, we make it so complicated, don't we? Yeah. And, you know, John, listening to that, I I think that jumps us into another reason why God gave the law. Uh, to keep us from the false hope that one day we could pull it off and be like God. And if we can be like God, we don't need God. And that's why I love the New Testament, because what was, you know, in our eyes, and I think any honest student of the Bible would have to admit this. When you look at all those commandments, every one of us should say we can't. But that spiritual independence, that, that pride, we, we, we try and we think we can. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit spelled it out in 2 Corinthians 3. And he said, the law is a minister of death and condemnation. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, he said it plainly. Nobody can miss it. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The law can never give life. Only God can give life. So I'm so glad for this New Testament to help us come to understanding that really anybody who looks at the law should come to, but we don't. Well, listening to you talk, my mind runs to a couple of verses in Romans that are really nails in the coffin, so to speak, on this way of thinking. Romans 5, law stirs up sin. Romans 7, it stirs up all types of sin. And so it doesn't act like gutters in a bowling alley. It, it has just the opposite effect. It inflames you. And so there's no way, not only can we not keep it, but it makes us sin far more than we ever would without the law. Now that seems counterintuitive. My goodness, it certainly is true, isn't it? Yeah, because in Romans 7, as you just brought people to that chapter, we get introduced to what we could call another actor 
who comes onto the stage. We have the law, we have the person, Paul, trying to keep the law, and as Philippians 3 and 4 say, boy, he was doing pretty good at it, in his own eyes anyway. But then there's this other actor called the power of sin. And the power of sin, Paul says, uses the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's wholly perfectly good. But the power of sin uses the law to create sin, to, to empower sin, to stir up more sin. It would almost be like if I said to you right now, John, whatever you do, don't think of a green monkey. And, you know, you haven't thought of a green monkey probably in your lifetime. But as soon as we say it, don't, bam, you're thinking of a green monkey. And that's what the power of sin does. And when you try to follow the law, the power of sin is going to come in and it's going to produce all kinds of sin in your life. Maybe not drunkenness and, and, all, and all that kind of thing, but it's going to produce pride and arrogance. Or if you don't do very well, it's going to produce shame and condemnation. And either way, it's a sinful preoccupation with you and what you're doing, whether good or bad, instead of God and what he wants to do in and through you. Crazy. You know, it's almost like there's a, there's a presence in us, around us, tempting us. Go back to, uh, go back to Genesis once again, and sin crouches at the door waiting for Cain. Uh, a power, an entity to control, to manipulate, to maneuver. Uh, I don't see that ever disappearing in scripture until we get home or the Lord comes back. Oh, John, I, you've really hit on such an important point. In the New Testament, it's very clear we have been made righteous. God has given us the righteousness of his own son. We have been resurrected. We have been made brand new. We have been given life. Nothing else needs to be done in our life other than one thing. And that's leaving this physical world, at which point we will live behind, live behind the presence of sin in our lives. That's, we're not going to be transformed anymore at the moment of death or the coming of Christ than we already are, but we will be forever free from that presence of sin. Like you said in Genesis four, that's like a wild animal waiting to devour us. And what a, what a joy it is to be ultimately free. We're free from the power of sin now, but to be free from the presence of sin. Incredible. Yeah. Sin now becomes a choice. You know, my friend, listening to you talk, uh, my mind is, forming uh, the framework for maybe we can do this next time, uh, another podcast about just exactly what the power of sin is, how it works, how it interfaces with our flesh, how it feeds thoughts into our mind, and how it, how it works to tempt and tease and coerce and titillate and entice us to, uh, to set our mind on something other than life. I think that would be a great idea, John. Um, you know, we don't ever want to become preoccupied with sin or preoccupied with the flesh or preoccupied with Satan. But we do need to understand our enemy. 
uh, I'm reminded that in World War II, you know, Erwin Rommel, that great tank commander that Germany had, was wiping the snot out of every army that came against him until he came against a guy named George Patton and the Third Army. And George Patton had read Rommel's book on tank warfare. So <laughs> <laughs> he knew his enemy. He, he wasn't preoccupied with it, but he knew his enemy. So that would be a good idea to, to understand the flesh and the power of sin. Why don't we do it? Yeah, okay, that's a good idea. I remember looking back in my early, my early years as a Christian, we attended a church that was very heavily focused on, uh, on the demonic. I'll just leave it at that. Mm. And uh, how vulnerable and how weak and how timid they portrayed believers in the presence of our enemy. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, and it's, it's, it's wonderfully freeing to, to know the truth. But we'll save that for a future podcast. Uh, right now, I guess it's about time to wrap this up, my friend. Uh, we're getting about toward the end of our time. Any last comments that you care to make about the power of sin, uh, the fact that we can't keep the law ever apart from uh, Christ in us. Uh, what are your last thoughts? Well, you know, John, I, I once had a long discussion with a pastor and trying to explain to him the new covenant that, and he basically accused me of being against the law. And I said, no, sir, you've got it wrong. I am very pro law. I want the law to do everything that God intended it to do. And that is to beat the living daylights out of people and drive them to Jesus. But what I am also then, and I needed to clarify this with him, I'm not against the law, but I am instead of it. We are given in the new covenant, the person of the Holy Spirit. And why would we ever want to go back to the law when we can have the living God of the universe living inside of us? Like, you know, I think of John 1. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus. So I think we need to ask believers, who do you want to be a disciple of? Would you rather be a disciple of Moses or would you rather be a disciple of Jesus? Would you rather live under the law or would you rather receive experience and be empowered by the life of God? Wow, that's a question that every believer needs to understand the correct answer. <laughs> well, we all know the correct answer. It's choosing, choosing to live it out that can be challenging. And dear listeners, remember how we started this, uh, this episode. We began by talking about Romans 5, 17, about receiving the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. And as we've covered a lot of topics today, some of which will expand in future podcasts, please remember that you've got to understand who you really are in relation to your Savior and in relation to the law before you can really receive fully and enjoy fully your identity and your righteousness in Christ. Remember, Romans 5.17 is true about you regardless of whether or not you feel it. 
I was I was uh, talking to someone just this morning, and she led me to Second Corinthians two, where Paul writes. Get this, Frank. This blew my socks off. He always leads us in triumph in Christ and makes us a sweet aroma of Christ in every place we go. That's no matter what we did, no matter what we didn't do, no matter how we failed, no matter whom we might have hurt, he always leads us in triumph, which means we are a triumphant warrior in our identity, regardless of our behavior. And bro, that'll make a good sermon. There you go. You can preach that next Sunday. There you go. <laughs> yeah, our behavior never determines who we are. That's a that's, glorious truth. That's right. Well, dear friends, uh, thanks again for listening to us. Join us next time on the Our Resolute Hope podcast. Don't forget to check us out on our website, OurResoluteHope.com, and follow us on our growing number of social media platforms. Until next time, walk close. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.